Welcome to the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to our referendum is underway. So join us as we discuss how, together, we can build a fairer, more equal and a more prosperous Scotland. Our goal is to ensure that our listeners are informed, that they're encouraged to get involved and will hopefully inspire others to think about the possibilities for Scotland. Because... As our country renews, we need to choose our own future before somebody else chooses it for us. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP, and in this episode, I'm in conversation with Ian Blackford MP. Ian is the MP for Rosskye and Lochaber, the largest UK parliamentary constituency at over 12,000 square kilometres. That's even bigger than mine. He was elected in 2015 and in 2017 became Westminster Group Leader for the SNP. Born in Edinburgh, he now lives in a croft in Skye with his wife Anne, and he really is a good guy, even though he's a passionate, lifelong Hibs fan. Ian, thanks for joining us on Scotland's Choice. My pleasure. Good opportunity to discuss issues which I know are important to people in Scotland. And, you know, I think the next few months is really going to be an important period to give people confidence that we've got the vision, we've got the plan, in order we can deliver a better, a fairer, a greener Scotland. And this is an important part of that whole process of talking with people, of course, listening to the, the issues that are important for people mm. as well. Talking about those issues that are important to people, pensions was one of the big three topics, obviously alongside the likes of currency and borders back in 2014. Taking a look back now, Ian, at what was on the table then, how does it compare with what's on the table now? Well, you know, I think one of the things, the starting point has to be is what happens to pensioners today. Mm. And what we've got is a patchwork quilt of regulations and of oversight. Too many changes to the pensions ministers that have been in place. No certainty for for people. Mm -hmm. And I think a lack of trust that people have in pensions. And the commitment that I would give to people on behalf of the SNP is that we would do things differently. So, for example, we would have a pensions commissioner. Um, because it is important that we look at this in a holistic way. You can't keep changing things on a short-term basis. You've got to give people that commitment that you will look after the long-term interest. So people can rely on both the state pension, but also have the right kind of regime that encourages people to save for their old age as well. But, you know, one of the things I would say for today is that the UK has one of the lowest pensions in Europe. Mm. And, and in fact, the whole way that the UK looks at it is wrong-headed. They talk about it as a benefit. It's not a benefit. Yeah. People mm-hmm. pay national insurance contributions and they've got to treat people with a lot more respect. The WASPy women are a good example, those that were denied their legitimate pensions. But as far as the SNP is concerned, what is most important is that we have got a commitment that we make sure that pensions are sustainable and there's a commitment that we will increase over time mm-hmm. that value of the state pension in an independent Scotland. Well, I want to come back to the WASPy women in a moment or two to uh, explain about what's happened to them and to talk about their situation. But the, you've been talking there about uh, the, the pension situation. Isn't it the case that we currently have, under the UK, the poorest pensions in Western Europe? Yeah, we do. I mean, it's an absolute disgrace the way that people have been treated. And I think there was an acceptance that the level of provision for pensioners was too low. And that's one of the reasons why we had the triple lock. Uh, So at least pensioners were protected. And of course, what we've seen over the course of the last few weeks, that despite the fact that was a manifesto commitment from the Conservatives, indeed a manifesto commitment that the SNP have had for a a number of elections, Mm -hmm. that the Tories tore up that contract. Uh, They tore up uh, the commitment to make sure 
that uh, pensions would rise in line with wages. It was an absolute disgrace. And it once again shows that as far as the Tory government's concerned, that pensioners are expendable. Pensioners will never be expendable in an independent Scotland. And what we find since 2014 is, as you've said, all those promises um, about uh, you know remaining in the UK in terms of pensions, they're just happy to jettison them. There, there, there is all of that. And, mm -hmm. and of course, I think also as well, you've got to look at what you do to encourage people to save for pensions for the long term. Mm -hmm. So you've got that mix of your state pension and your private pension. So one of the big issues here is about what's called the pensions dashboard. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we're delighted that there's going to be a pensions dashboard that's going to be available for people. But it has to give people all the information that they need. And this is something that should be provided by the DWP, where you can bring together all the information um, on the investments that, that people have made. But there has to be fairness within all that system mm -hmm. as well, because I think for the average man on the street, sometimes these things are seen as more complex than they need to be. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that perhaps is not understood as much as it should be is that pensions tax relief is in effect, in the main, a subsidy for higher rate taxpayers. So we need to reform the system to make sure there's an incentive for everybody to save effectively for their older age, to make sure that they've got the, the protections that they actually need. And that's the commitment that we would give as an independent Scottish mm -hmm. government. Um, and of course, one of the other aspects of the last few years and all the changes that have taken place have been what's often referred to as pensions freedom. Mm -hmm. But there's a glaring fault with the way that system works because the UK government bases pensions freedom on giving what they call guidance. Now, OK, that's fair enough up to a point, but it stops short of giving people advice. Mm -hmm. And often there's a barrier to people getting the, the advice on an affordable basis. Mm -hmm. That they, that they actually want. I think one of the other issues, of course, has been uh, another piece of legislation the UK government brought in uh, was on the lifetime savings. Mm -hmm. But again, lifetime savings, as constructed by the UK government, are not as tax efficient as savings and pensions. So mm -hmm. the waters have been muddied, there's a lack of clarity, there's a lack of proper oversight. We'll take our responsibilities properly to make sure people are encouraged to save they can do that in a system that they can trust, where ultimately, at the top of the tree, you'll have that pensions commissioner that will have the authority to make sure that people are looked after properly. You mentioned how the waters have been muddied in terms of pensions. Let's return to the plight of the WASPy women, something that all of us as SNP MPs have been raising at Westminster for years now on their behalf. Can you outline the situation they've faced and does this speak to the way the UK fails to care about its responsibilities? Well, it was disgraceful, and it was something that happened over, over a number of governments where women's pensionable age was increased from 60 to 67. But the worst of this was that the women concerned weren't given effective notice of this taking place. Mm. Now, nobody, nobody would argue that there shouldn't be equalisation of pensionable age for men and women, mm. but it's how you do it mm -hmm. and the pace of that change. Now, you're talking about what is, in effect, a seven-year increase that's taking place mm -hmm. with pension age for women. Interestingly enough, when the government had the Cridland review, yeah. uh, Cridland argued that pensionable age should only increase for one year per decade. So there's no question that women have been badly dealt with. And often women, they were given literally months notice that they weren't going to reach pensionable age age mm -hmm. 60. It was being deferred for a number of years. And actually it's very worst. Women, women's pensionable age was increasing by three months mm -hmm. for each calendar month. 
So if you think about it, at that point, if you were born a year later than, than, than another, another woman, then you actually found that your, your pensionable, pensionable age had increased by three years. Mm. It was extraordinary they thought it was reasonable and fair to treat people in that manner. And it comes back to this issue that we mentioned earlier, that people paid national insurance on the basis they thought that they were going to get a pension. And the UK government is riddled out of this mm -hmm. because they've said this is a benefit, not an entitlement. It's very simple. I mean, the, the women are due compensation mm -hmm. for the way that they've been treated. Many have faced real hardship. People were told, there was one pensions minister that told the women concerned that they should go on apprenticeship schemes. And, of mm -hmm. course, a lot of these women have been in pretty hard physical jobs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to the extent that they were to a degree done in they, mm. they weren't in a position where they could easily work on many of course uh, facing ill health as well mm. this is simply no way to treat people that have worked for decades and find that the government simply wasn't taking part in its yeah. obligation to make sure the women that were getting their pensions at the time that they thought that they were going to get them you mentioned government there, but this isn't just the Tories. Labour and the Lib Dems have been in power during this scandal. It started with Labour, mm -hmm. and actually the biggest jump in women's pensionable age was uh, delivered under the Tory Liberal Coalition. Mm -hmm. And of course, it was a Liberal pensions minister that was responsible for putting that through. Where do the WASPy women go from here, and how can an independent Scotland do things differently? Well, of course, unfortunately, the, the the clock has been ticking on this, and many of the, the women that we've been campaigning for have now reached um, their pensionable age at a, at a later date. So it is the issue of, of compensation. And, of course, there are the DWP has been found negligent mm. by the pensions ombudsman, but the case hasn't reached its, its full maturity yet. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. But I think it is the case that the, the UK government has an obligation to make sure people are properly recompensed and, and the commitment that, that we would give is that women would be treated fairly. Uh, the pensioners overall would be treated fairly mm -hmm. and that will come through the uh, the proposition of having the pensions commissioner that we talked about. That would be a holistic approach and mm -hmm. I think a lot of this is actually you know, broadening this out from pensions a wee bit. It's about the obligation that you have to society. It's about the kind of society that we, that we want. And what I really hope is going to happen over the course of the next few months is that we start to have a debate of what, what type of country, what are the mm -hmm. values that are that are important behind that, because this is really crucial to the whole thing. We want to deliver that fairer society, not just for uh, the older generation, but for, for those in work, and, the, and of course our, our younger people that are increasingly getting a, a raw deal as well. Uh, and, and of course you do that by making sure that you grow the economy in a sustainable way. You do that by making sure that you embrace the, the Green Revolution. We want to be able to have that green future. We want to make sure that we can get to net zero by at least 2045. But delivering through green jobs, economic growth, mm -hmm. delivering investment in the economy is an important part of that to create the wealth. But it's wealth for a purpose. Yeah. It's about making sure that you're dealing with wellness. It's making sure that you have the social security system that you want. And one of the things which is a priority of the Scottish Government today is making sure that we eradicate poverty and in particular that we eradicate child poverty mm -hmm. and we've seen that in the announcements that the Scottish Government's made with the child payment for example as an important part of that so we'll take our responsibilities seriously using the resources that we generate individually and collectively to make sure people well, are looked after because uh, I think you know sometimes 
and when I want to talk to the people of Scotland about this, it's two sides of the one coin mm, yeah. about how you deliver that prosperity and how you deliver social justice as well. And in a sense, it's it's appealing to that common wheel. So it's how you structure that system that everybody sees that you benefit from this, but you also create the climate, you create the architecture that companies will want to come and invest because you've got a healthy and a wealthy and a balanced society, one where health and education are really two important cornerstones about how you go about that. So that, that kind of wider debate about mm -hmm. all of these things is going to be really, really important when we have that discussion about whether or not Scotland should become an independent country. You touched on the affordability of pensions, and that's a, a question that's always thrown about by opponents of independence. You know, how would uh, Scotland pay for pensions, etc.? How, how is it that countries of a similar size to Scotland afford to pay for their pensions? Well, I think, you know, in the main, when you look at European countries, certainly when you look at smaller European countries, in the main, at the level of pension provision is significantly greater than it is in the United Kingdom. But let, let, let's just explore this a bit. Um, and I spent quite a bit of time over the last while with a, an economist by the name of David Skilling. I would argue he's one of the leading, if not the leading, uh, economists in small countries around the world. And there's something really interesting when you start to examine this. And I would argue, he would argue, that actually there aren't economies of scale for large countries. Mm -hmm. And certainly when you, you look in the context of, of Europe, uh, you find that small countries, and, I mean, you can reel them off, and for, for those purposes I'm thinking of countries with populations of 10 million. When you look over the course of the last decade, but you can choose others, that you tend to find that small countries grow at a faster rate than large mm -hmm. countries. So if you take the last 10-year period, uh, small countries in Europe have grown at a rate of 3% per annum. But the point is, what you need to do is you need to create the circumstances, and this happens over time, where you're able to deliver a higher rate of economic growth. And the same is true of the emerging countries where you take the Baltics as an example as well. Mm -hmm. That then delivers the resources that allows you to invest in your social services, that allows you to invest in pension provision. And so the whole story about independence, yes, you want to start on that journey. You want to give people hope that you can do better. But the real benefits of independence are going to be felt over the longer term. Yes, mm -hmm. it's, it's important for pensioners, but I think a lot of people that are pensioners want to think about the future for their children and in particular for their grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And it's about how you create that modern, prosperous, dynamic country, an independent country in Europe, and how over time you're able to give that hope that you'll create the jobs, you'll deliver the investment in our economy, and you'll get to that end goal that we all, that we all want to get to. So, uh, post-independence, what would happen to state pensions? This was another issue that was discussed in 2014. Absolutely nothing. So the important point is that those that have contributed while we've been part of the UK have an entitlement for a pension. Indeed, that was made, um, that was made clear by the Chief Secretary to the Treasury at the time of the independence referendum in 2014. Mm -hmm. So that commitment to continue to pay pensions rests with the UK government. That's no different to a UK citizen that chooses, for example, to live in Canada or Spain or France or mm -hmm. anybody else. Then uh, that commitment to receive your pension remains in place. That's an obligation of the UK government. And what will happen going forward, it will be the obligation of the Scottish government to look after pension entitlement from the period for those that are working and gaining uh, or making pension contributions in the period post-independence. So that follows on. What about private not occupational pensions? Would they also be transferred in a, in a frictionless way? Yeah, there'd be no difference because that entitlement that you have 
to a workplace pension, whether that's defined benefit or defined contribution, does not change. Your access to that pension is not based on the state you live in. It's not based on where you live. It's based on the fact that you have a physical right to that pension, mm -hmm. which has been generated through your work experience. Mm -hmm. At the start of our discussion, we talked about some of the 2014 promises that had been broken by the UK government. Uh, the, the UK government's now announced that it's scrapping the pensions triple lock, and this will obviously cost pensioners. The, the triple lock was held up in 2014 by unionists as, you know, kind of set in stone, a, a benefit of being a part of the UK. Uh, why do you think this too has fallen by the wayside? You know, I think what we've seen over the course of the last while is so many commitments that the Conservative government made in particular have been shown to be worthless. So you can talk about the triple lock that we discussed, you can talk about the commitment to spend 0.7% of uh, net national income on overseas aid. So I'm, I'm afraid, unfortunately, none of the promises from the UK government are worth the, worth the paper they are written on. And again, this comes back to the type of country that you, that you want to be and the obligation that you have and the, and the commitment that we have made, manifesto commitment we have made, is that we would have retained the triple lock. Uh, we want to make sure that pensioners are properly rewarded. Uh, we need to make sure that people have access to pension credit, which has been another issue uh, where eligibility has been paired back over the course of the last few years as well. So our commitment that we give to pensioners, but the commitment more widely we give to society in Scotland is that we will take our responsibilities seriously. When you have a manifesto commitment, you need to adhere to it. But in all the commitments that have been made by the UK government, that Scotland was to uh, be a respected and a leading part of the mm. United Kingdom, our voice would be heard, that we'd remain as citizens of the European Union. <laughs> well, you and I both remember trying to put amendments into the Scotland Act in 2015 when we were uh, first elected, and, and virtually all of Scotland's uh, MPs were SNP at that time, yet all of the amendments we put forward were rejected, so there was uh, no listening there. Turning to wider issues, I, I want to talk about the economy in general. Uh, we, we've seen through Brexit the harm that's been inflicted on our economy. It's really hammered our export trade. Are you concerned that the damage that's being done will be used to suggest that Scotland doesn't have a, a, a strong enough economy for independence? I mean, the whole point is that Scotland has been held back by being part of the United Kingdom and Brexit is just a demonstration of that and I mean you can talk about all sorts of real life examples I mean I met uh, a minister here in, in Westminster this week to discuss the impact of Brexit on Maui, uh, the, the fish farm business and in particular the fish feed operation that they have on the Isle of Sky because all of a sudden the ability of that plant to export to Europe has been constrained mm -hmm. by the fact that the products need to be tested and that's taking a week for that process to take place, putting them at a very considerable uh, disadvantage to competitors elsewhere. And that's before we talk about the problems that are going to come in with importing raw materials for that plant. And we're talking, the impact of that is that that's less jobs in Sky. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the harsh reality. Mm -hmm. It's missed economic opportunity. But the, the whole point about independence is about taking responsibility to make sure you can do things differently. And there are so many examples of where we've been held back. Um, so, I mean, let's just think about energy. And we all know that we've got to have that transition to that, that green future that we, that we all want to see. But just when you look at what's happened over the course of the last few weeks, not getting carbon capture and storage in mm. Scotland, 
is massively important, would have resulted in the creation of about 20,000 jobs, for example. A, a key element of that transition that has to take mm -hmm. place. And a key element, by the way, of getting to net zero in 2045. Now, let me give you another example. Um, the SNP in Westminster have been pushing quite extensively to make sure that we get the the investments that are required to kickstart the opportunities that, that are in, in Tidal Marine. Now, this is massively important for mm -hmm. us because when you think about the desire to deliver green energy, but also deliver green energy that's 24-7, 365 days a year, the difference between tidal and traditional wind is that the tide is always there. Mm -hmm. So we know we can deliver the baseload electricity that we need to underpin our system. And we demonstrated on the back of a Royal Society report that if we could get what is in the context of investments in energy, a £70 million investment a year by the UK government, mm -hmm. that would allow a glide path to get to 15% of the UK's energy being delivered out of tidal stream by 2050. So in other words, something which would be as significant as nuclear is, mm -hmm. but without the downsides of that investment in nuclear. The key point is when you look at the investments that have already taken place there, admittedly at this stage small, 90% of the investment in the value chain in Tidal comes from the UK. Mm -hmm. Actually, in, in the case of Scotland, it's often as high as 80%. What a difference from what's happened, if I may say so, with oil and gas mm -hmm. and wind, where we'll, we'll be able to make sure that we capture that entire, entire value chain, that we deliver the jobs for Scotland. But again, we're being held back by the UK mm -hmm. because they've delivered an investment of 20 million. Welcome, although that is, it doesn't allow us to grow this industry as quickly and to the extent as we need to. And the reason these things are important is you have to demonstrate that these investments will deliver. The whole point about doing that is you then bring significant private sector capital in. But government's got to take its responsibilities mm -hmm. first. And it's that failure of the UK government to recognise its responsibility, both in terms of a sector that delivers green dependable energy but something which is going to kickstart economic growth. Now, let me let me widen this out because this is really crucial in terms of the overall strategy about how you deliver economic growth. And what you need to do with that desire to deliver green energy is you need to put that together with an industrial strategy. And you need to think about the strategic objectives of Scotland. You've got to think about the areas where we can create value. Now, for example, if we can deliver this green dependable energy, you can start to think about... Um, the power that's required for quite energy-intensive facilities like data centres mm -hmm. and start to think about the digital capabilities that we can build in Scotland. So there's masses of opportunities, but you need to have that industrial plan. And that is something which is absolutely sadly lacking from the UK government. So we'll take our responsibilities and we'll deliver a plan mm -hmm. that will accelerate economic growth in Scotland, deliver the wealth, deliver the resources for us to invest in pensions, deliver the resources that allow us to tackle child poverty in Scotland. These things are all linked together. You're talking there about that massive opportunity for Scotland through independence, and you've pointed out how Westminster is holding Scotland back with some really good examples such as carbon capture and, and, and tidal and a range of things. And I, earlier I, I mentioned trade. We, we could go on and on and on with example after example. Isn't it the case now that we simply can't afford to be in the union any longer? No, we can't afford to miss the opportunities that we can create. So, yeah, look, on, on, on the one level, I can blame Westminster for the things that, 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 that haven't happened that we need to happen. 
but it's also about the excitement about the opportunities that we can create. I mean, if you think about an independent Scotland in Europe, and and think about the opportunities that would come from that, an English-speaking country, at the at the heart of Europe in that sense, then there are enormous opportunities. We need to have that lifeblood of people being able to come to work in Scotland from Europe, and, and our citizens been able to work in the European Union as mm -hmm. well. One of the things which is really going absolutely massive for us in, in going forward is the strength of our academic sector. Mm -hmm. We have a sector that prospers on a global stage and we get the standing of our universities. Well, higher passes at uh, uh, record levels since uh, devolution, more school leavers and positive destinations, record numbers of students going to university and uh, three Scottish universities in the world's top 100. Take, take Edinburgh as an example. Around about 26% Mm -hmm. of the academic personnel at Emory University are EU nationals. Now, all of a sudden, mm -hmm. as a consequence of Brexit, our talent pool ha has become increasingly shallow. Now, we need to make sure we can attract the best talent. But at the moment, that's not as easy as it was. So if we're to continue to excel, if we're able to show that this is an area that will deliver value for Scotland, you know, and one of the most remarkable things over the last few years is the, the, the UK government's lack of ability to recognise that those that come to study in Scotland, for example, have a value to our economy. And the removal of the post-study uh, work visa mm. is extraordinary because you're talking about people that, that can and want to make a contribution to our future economic growth, want to deal with the demographic challenge in many ways that, mm. we, that we suffer from. So it's about recognising that with independence, no one's arguing that it's going to be a, a land of milk and honey that we fix everything in day one, but you create the circumstances to allow the delivery of that economic growth, reposition the economy for future decades, for future generations, and that you show that yes, we can deliver, that we'll start to be able to accelerate economic growth in Scotland from creating that dynamic, modern, efficient, independent country that we can do. Other independent countries also have their challenges, but they also have the powers to realise their potential, which is something that Scotland should really have too, isn't it? Well, that's right. And, I'm, and, I, and I talked about the, the work of David Skilling and others demonstrating the track record of small countries. They're all different. I mean, if you look at the Baltics, the Baltics are different from Norway, from Denmark, from, from Ireland and so on. But they've all played to their strengths. And I think one of the key things, and this is particularly so for small countries in the European Union, You've got that ability to access that larger market. And that ability to access that larger market tends to come with a desire mm. to exercise opportunities, to move quickly, to see the opportunities as they arise. And it comes back to the point I made about there being no evidence of there being uh, opportunities of scale for larger countries. In fact, it's the reverse, if you can show that you can, mm. you can do that quickly. There's lots of things that we need to do. And, and the Scottish government's established an investment bank, for example, and I'm delighted that that is the case because we need to start to think strategically about the growth sectors. We've got to think about the choices that we make. One of the things, again, at the moment is the investment bank is constrained to an extent. It has an annual budget of £200 million a year. Mm -hmm. But as a consequence of the Treasury rules, it's not allowed to borrow. When I want to maximise that opportunity for us to have a strategic investment bank, that can focus on the growth sectors for the future, can focus on the priorities that the, that the government has, but has got the ability to borrow on top of its equity to accelerate that investment that we, that we need to make. And I want the investment bank to be able to attract talent, mm -hmm. whether that's from within Scotland or out with Scotland, 
and create a vehicle that will encourage other people to want to come and invest, whether it's through the investment bank itself or elsewhere, because they see Scotland as a destination. It's a very different philosophy than what we get currently with the existing setup of Scotland as being part of the United Kingdom. When Scotland becomes independent, what, in your view, is the one thing that Scotland can do most quickly in terms of realising our potential or realising a better society? Well, I mean, obviously for us, there is um, exasperation a lot of the choices that the, the UK government makes, and that's across many fields. We've just been debating today immigration in this place, for example. So we want to have a a system which is fairer, which encourages people that want to make a contribution, that can make a contribution to Scotland to be able to do that, to have something that's much more structured. We, we want to be part of free movement of people in the European Union because we've benefited from that and we will benefit from that again. You look at the choices that the UK government has made on social policy, uh, you look at the shortcomings that, that there is mm -hmm. in universal credit, an area that you've been mm -hmm. uh, very vocal about. The way that you treat people, and I suppose, I think one of the things at the core of all of that, in the UK, they, they, they tend to talk about, uh, they, they tend to talk about welfare. I mean, that is a word which, which jars with us, yeah. because what we talk about is social security, and there's a phrase that, that, that I've used before, that society is only as strong as its weakest link. So it's about how you create the circumstances that allow people to make a contribution to to society, how you value people. The importance and how you well. support people who have already made a contribution to society but have found themselves in, uh, in, in a difficult position. Which of course yeah. happens, it can yeah. happen to, mm. to anybody. The whole wellness agenda that I, mm. that I talked about earlier. I think the point about this too, and, and, and you think about our experiences in government, I and mean, the SNP is now in a cooperation agreement with the Greens. It's not about us always being right, us having all the right answers. We want to be able to cooperate with others. We want to listen to others. We want to create a climate in Scotland where everybody feels that they're valued and they're worth something. It's very different from what you what you find in this place. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the way you set these things up, the way that you encourage people, the way that you show that they, the, not just the governments but other institutions' doors are open for people to make a contribution and we pull together as a country with the aim of, 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 of creating that better society. That's what we will do. To finish off, can you say quickly what kind of country you think Scotland will become when it becomes independent? One, one that values people. One that allows people to really show their potential. But it has to be on the basis that we deliver fairness because there is too much inequality in this society. Too many people in the part of the country that you and I live in where 40% of pensioners are living in fuel poverty, for example. Mm. So let's make sure that people are looked after, that they'll be looked after on the basis that we will grow the wealth in this country to make sure everyone has their part to play and that people feel valued. Well, my thanks to Ian Blackford for taking part and to you for listening. Don't forget you can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. If you can share this podcast, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice.